Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the, ch the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What we're doing is actually launching a new teaching series that I just want to introduce up to you, like on the front end, uh, just for a few, few, few seconds. Um, to sort of set the pace for where we're going over the next few weeks. Um, and it's important for you to know, uh, particularly if you're sort of new-ish to our church community, um, or you're still kind of checking this out, you haven't quite settled yet, uh, that it's important for you to know that like our normal flow and rhythm here is to go through books of the Bible. Um, that's, that's how we believe uh, the Word of God should be uh, is best studied, uh, best understood. That way you can get to understand like every single word and verse in its proper context. Uh, it makes it so that uh, we, we don't get to avoid the hard stuff, right? If we're going through an entire book, it's like we got to touch every topic and every verse. And so uh, that is our normal flow and rhythm. But every once in a while, um, we, we do what's called a topical series, um, where we pick a topic and then we still address and ask the question, like, what does the Bible say about this particular uh, topic? And we're still going through it biblically, so we're, we're, like every single week that we're, we're, we're going, like you, you'll still see Bible verses, we're still going to walk through them. Uh, but rather uh, than uh, having an entire book tell us where we're going, um, what we're doing is uh, we're considering some of the most common questions that we get asked by you, uh, some of the most common pain points that we feel in this life, and one of the, the areas of the most common joys that we experience as well. Uh, and that's in the area of relationships, right? In the area of relationships, uh, we, we experience some of the, the hardest things we have to go through, some of the most delightful things that we get to walk through. Um, and in turn, we end up having a lot of questions about, man, how does my Christian faith, how does the Bible, how does the gospel speak into and shape the relationships that I have? And so that's where we're going over the next few weeks. Um, Brian Seitz is going to uh, launch us off uh, by talking about marriage. Uh, and just by way of preface, uh, this is uh, a sermon for every single one of us. Whether you're married or not, uh, whether you uh, are, have been married but are not currently, uh, whether you hope to be married but are not yet, right? Like this is a sermon for all of us because, uh, as you'll see as Brian teaches, that marriage has a lot to say about Jesus in the church. And not only that, but like many of us in this room are married or are going to be married, uh, and many of us or all of us, hopefully, are exploring what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. And part of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, uh, even if you 
are never called to marriage, you have what the Bible calls the gift of singleness, right, for the rest of your life. Like, if that is uh, the, the sort of assignment that God has called for you, uh, you part of what it means to be a faithful uh, Christian is being in a local church where you're covenanted with those who are married. And so this, this touches all of us uh, from a variety of different angles. So I'm going to ask Brian to come up here. I'm going to pray for him, uh, and then he's going to walk us through God's word. Father, uh, again, I just thank you for my brother Brian um, and uh, just the gifts that you've given him, also in the experiences that you've given him uh, through his background uh, as um, just in law enforcement and leadership, uh, in his his background as uh, as a lay minister uh, in marital uh, counseling. Uh, and things like that. And, and God, I even see uh, it is no accident that you're having him teach this topic on marriage uh, right on the heels of, of, of him and Linda um, just um, spending some time with some uh, local leaders who uh, have experienced some trauma that has affected their marriage. We know, God, that marriage is your design. It is... Uh, your masterpiece, and I pray, God, that as, as Brian walks us through your word, that you make all of us teachable, that you help us see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in these verses, and that more than anything, God, that we would get a bigger, clearer, more beautiful view of who you are. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So I, I know <clears throat> I'm in good company here because every one of you, especially Dennis, loves the Hallmark Channel, right? <laughs> I mean, every movie has different actors, maybe not, in um, different locations with an almost identical plot, which is great, right? I mean, and if you haven't seen it, here's the plot of a Hallmark movie. Two people can't stand each other, and through crazy mishaps, they keep bumping into each other until they suddenly, finally fall head over heels in love and live happily ever after. Now, that just sounds wonderful, um, but there's bad news to that. That's a Hollywood version of love, and Hollywood knows almost nothing about love, and they're setting us up for failure. See, Hollywood doesn't really sell love. They sell lust, and based on the popularity of these movies, our culture, our society, probably most of us are buying that, and so... I want to get specifically into God's design for marriage because it, it might not be what you think. But first, I need to acknowledge a couple of things, actually three. I need to acknowledge, as Chris did, singleness. I need to acknowledge expertise, and I need to acknowledge divorce. So sometimes churches have a tendency to make an idol out of marriage, and we shouldn't. This message is not a condemnation of singleness. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us himself in 1 Corinthians 7 that he's one single, and two, that he wishes everybody else could be single. Paul tells us that the pull or desire for sex is so strong in those people that the best way to deal with that desire is to have a spouse. And so let's, let's look at Paul's words. Here they are exactly. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And you should know, um, there's some other pretty famous biblical singles. The prophet Jeremiah, he was single. The prophet Elijah, he was single. John the Baptist, he was single. And there's actually a long list more. So if you're single, you're in great company. But most people desire a spouse. Most people, like me, as Paul said, if you can't exercise self-control, you should get married. I feel like Paul was writing directly to me on that one. <clears throat> um, and this is also not about me being an expert on marriage. Lynn and I have a marriage ministry. We've met with a lot of people, but I've learned something from every single one of those persons. So if your definition of an expert is he spent a little more time thinking about it, yeah, I, I might have that. But if your definition of an expert is somebody who's got it nailed, that's not me. As a matter of fact, um, 
Next month, Linda and I will be married 34 years. Eric? Thank you. But 34 years doesn't mean we have it figured out. As a matter of fact, for me, it, you know, my hope is that I've been a decent husband for half of those. Because I know for half I probably haven't been. And I can tell you that the key for Linda and I was that when we finally learned to put God first, each other second, and everyone else, and I mean everyone, including your kids, after the marriage, things improved for us. And that's scriptural. And then the third thing I said I was going to acknowledge is divorce. I can tell you that divorce has touched my family hard. And divorce has touched some of my best and closest friends hard. And I don't think less of my family members or my friends. I don't love them any less. But I can tell you that I've had a front row seat to their divorces. And I have yet to see one that didn't have significant pain involved in it. And so if you're here and you've been divorced, I'm sorry. I'm sure it was a very difficult time in your life. But we have good news here in church. And the good news is that God's grace is big enough for everybody. But I think we can all agree that we don't get married to get divorced. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so my hope then after today is that we'll understand that God created marriage as a way to honor him and that divorce is not really a good way to honor God. And that's because marriage is actually for God more than it is for you. I know that might sound crazy, but hopefully we'll figure this out. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with a Christian author named Gary Thomas. He put it in the title of his best-selling book, Sacred Marriage. And this is his first point, so I forgot to thank Gary. I stole this from him, too. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than happy? And I know that's a counter-cultural statement, but that's Gary's premise. And I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. The answer is yes. That's exactly what marriage is for. And to demonstrate that, we're going to dissect the longest passage on marriage in the New Testament, which is what Michaela read. And I really appreciated Michaela reading it because as most of us know, Michaela and Anthony or Andrew are engaged. And so my, my expectation out of you two is copious notes. And we'll, we'll talk later to make sure that that happens, okay? So, and that's another thing. I'm going to ask you twice, and, and I honestly, I mean it for everybody, and I, I don't have the ability to force you, but my goal for you today is not only pay attention to all this, absorb all this, go back to God's Word and prove it for yourselves by seeing what it says and not what you think it says, but by taking some notes. And so if you take your notes in your phone, awesome. Get it ready. When Paul wrote Ephesians, which is what we're, we're quoting today, Greek society, a lot like today, was filled with sex and sexual expression. But unlike today, women were often treated as possessions, and if a man got tired of his wife, he could just cast her aside and get another one. A famous rabbi during Jesus' time actually taught that if a wife displeased her husband in any way, even for something as silly as maybe ruining a meal, that was grounds for divorce. And I think we now can recognize that's not love, that's actually slavery. And so we're not a church that, that approves of anything like that. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote against it. He wrote against it here in this verse, as we'll dissect. He wrote against it elsewhere. And then what Jesus taught about marriage, and he taught a lot, and what Jesus taught about uh, relationships actually changed the world. You see, Jesus traded his perfect heavenly home for a broken, fallen world. And when he did that, he endured shame and ridicule and death in our place because as it says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Or in Galatians 2.20, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus was all about sacrifice, and as we're going to see, it's exactly what marriage is. Which, I've broken this up into three sections. So this first section is about the ladies, and I mean all the ladies. 
So women make their first appearance in the Bible in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. And that verse says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I really want to draw your attention to in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Because ladies, you're not to be looked down on. Not by anybody. You're not second-class citizens anywhere to anyone. You're made in the image of God, and our God is great and powerful. And so you were made, but why? What's the reason? And we're going to go right to Genesis 2, 18 through 25, where it says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, and cling to that word helper for a moment. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and, and I want to slow down here. So imagine Adam. He's naming things. Cheetah, elephant, chihuahua. He's just throwing stuff out there, right? I mean, who named something chihuahua? But anyway. And then he sees woman. And I know we have at least one wedding photographer here. And one of the money shots is the first look, right? And so imagine this moment. Imagine Adam's first look. And imagine Adam, he's trying to do all these things. He's pleasing God. But it's not good that man should be alone. And Adam sees Eve for the first time. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's beautiful poetry. Imagine that first look. Imagine that moment. And then our verse continues. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So ladies, you're here because your man is incomplete without you. And why isn't it good for man to be alone? Because we know that God is love, right? And love is relational. God created man in his image to love and be love. And to be love, you have to love somebody else. So God has always had Christ and the Holy Spirit to love. We've got a trinity that loved each other always. But man, Adam, was alone. And he needed someone to love. And the definition of true love is sacrifice. And so ladies, you're here. You're what God gave us to be sacrificed for. And I ask you to hold on to that word helper. Well, I need you to know that in the original Hebrew, and so everything that we read, maybe with the exception of Pastor Chris, is a translation of the original Hebrew or Greek or a tiny bit of Aramaic. And in the original Hebrew, the same word helper is the word that God uses for himself when he helps the Israelites. So it's clearly not a less than. Which leads me back to Ephesians 5, verse 21. And so, uh, Logan, can you put the original verses back on the screen? And I, I don't think it really shows it there. If you have your Bible or your phone, if you would honor me by going to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Gives me a chance to take a drink, too. So if you're looking at that section right there, there's typically a break between verse 21 and 22, right? And in that break, it typically says something like wives and husbands. And I just want you to know that, again, in Hebrew, that separation's not there. <clears throat> now, I'm not down on it saying that, because what's that? Somebody's tried to give us a little helper. Somebody's tried to make it easy for somebody flipping around in their Bible to find something. But that break is not there. And so if you take wives and husbands out, those verses collide together. 
because Hebrew doesn't have punctuation like English does. And so if you start at verse 22, which is wives and husbands, and I think a lot of people do, it leaves an impression that I don't think really belongs there. Because in verse 21, Paul is talking about a community, a church, and how we're all supposed to submit to each other. Now, I'm not saying that wives shouldn't submit to their husbands. We'll cover that shortly. It says right there you should. But it also doesn't say women submit to men. It says submit to your husbands. And there's a good reason for that. If you think about it, without a leader, there's no such thing as a follower. And with two leaders, there's no leaders. So God uses this image of submission to point to Jesus' own headship and sacrifice. You see, Jesus submitted to God over and over in the New Testament. Jesus is the head of the church, and yet he sacrificed everything. And remember, Jesus is God, and he's the same Jesus who washed his disciples' feet. He's the same Jesus who allowed himself to be tortured and hanged on a tree and sacrificed himself for us. So men, headship doesn't go to your head. Headship is sacrificial, which gives me point number two. Your marriage, my marriage, is an illustration of how Christ loves his people. Ephesians 5 points out something amazing. Husband, you represent Christ in the marriage And wives, you represent the church. So from the beginning of time, God says, you want to know how my son loves my people? Look at marriage. So wives, when people look at you, you're to give them a picture of what the church looks like. And husbands, when people look at you, you're to give them a picture of what Christ is like. You see, your marriage is designed to be a picture for others. So imagine the two of you, if you will, side by side. You're standing in front of a blank canvas. And the way you treat each other is the paint and the brush. And when you're kind to each other, a little paint gets applied there. But when you're short or rude to each other, a little paint gets put over there. Until that picture begins to form. Now God's plan is for that painting to be a masterpiece that reflects him. So wives, if you disrespect your husband, you show the world that the church does not respect Christ. If you don't follow your husband, you show the world that Christ is not worthy to follow. And husbands, if you abandon your wife, you show the world that Christ abandons his people. And husbands, if you demean your wife, you show the world that Christ wants nothing to do with his people. So this painting, the one that's on your wall, is it telling a love story? Or is it a picture of domination and bitterness? And so for this painting, if for no other reason, this is why you do everything you can to stay in marriage. Not because it makes you feel good or because it's easy, but because Christ's very reputation is at stake. Now, I I don't know everybody here. I know most of you. But I can imagine somebody saying, Brian, you don't know my situation. We, we don't love each other anymore. Or they were unfaithful to me. I'm just a paycheck. Or maybe I'm just a babysitter. And I've got to be honest with you, you're right. I don't understand because I don't know all the nuance. But I do understand one thing here. When you got married, you married a sinner. A bad one. But so did your spouse. And Jesus, he came and he erased all that sin and we should do our best to respect his sacrifice. So where does that leave us? Well, hopefully in a church community that gathers at least once a week, if not more often, that leaves us with grace. Sacrificial love calls for grace. Forgive your spouse. Work towards reconciliation when there's problems. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another. Bearing doesn't sound like a sweet, squishy, soft word. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. If you find it hard to forgive, 
I understand. I find it hard to forgive. I'm not great at it. But it helps to remember that we were first forgiven before we were asked to forgive anything. So hear me loud and clear here, though. That doesn't mean anybody should put up with abuse. As was mentioned before, Linda and I counsel people. And over the years, we've run into domestic violence and child abuse and date rape. And while we don't counsel to divorce, we do occasionally counsel to separation. But I need you to know that temporary separation is a huge decision. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be done alone. It's much more complicated than most people imagine. And so if anyone here fears for their well-being, whether it's emotionally or physically, is thinking about separation or divorce, I beg you, call the authorities. If you need to call the authorities, you call the police. Don't ever feel guilty about that. But the other people you call, you call Pastor Chris, you call Oscar, you call Linda, you call me. We will walk through whatever these troubles are with you because we desire for you to be loved the way God intended you to be. All right, personal story of grace and kindness. Linda's going to get a lot of props here. So Linda became a believer long before I did. We were young. We had two kids at the time. We have three now, and our baby's 28, so this will tell you how long ago that was. And Linda was excited about this new relationship she had with God. I, however, was antagonistic towards her, and I was especially antagonistic towards her religion. And the crazy thing is, do you know what God used to reach me? He's the lady I was mad at most. <clears throat> you see, Linda had received advice from an older woman in her church, and that older woman told her to have grace on her husband. And she said, oh, honey, I'll paraphrase because I wasn't there, but he's young and he's arrogant. And we should be doing our best to make the church lovely. And so Linda did. Linda began to, to learn from her and learn from those experiences. And she made church and she made Christ lovely. Proverbs 25, 21, 22 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, Linda and I weren't enemies. Um, but the principle is still the same. And what Linda did through the advice of that wise woman was she transformed herself into the kind of wife that any man would want to be married to. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that my conscience started burning from the head down. And then I, I began to notice something else. And, and I don't think most of you will believe me, but this is the honest to goodness truth. Linda began to shine. I can't explain it. It sounds silly to say it out loud, but she began to shine in a way that her inner beauty took over her outer beauty, and I've always thought Linda was a beautiful woman. So it's weird, though, because Proverbs 12, 24a says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And at that same time, when I noticed her beauty, she became irresistible to me. I can't tell you how many different men came up to me and gave me compliments on my wife. Your wife's amazing. I, she gets prettier every time I see her. And I can only tell you that it was true. And so Linda, by following God's direction, became a crown. And suddenly from me wanting to be antagonistic towards her and her faith, I wanted to treat her better and I wanted to learn more about God from her. And ultimately I wanted to lead her appropriately. But I imagine when Michaela read that, those verses, a few of you might have cringed a little bit at a couple of the lines in there. And so I get it because we're listening with modern ears. Because in modern ears, Ephesians 5 is controversial because our culture, well, it, it preaches rabid individualism. But scripture doesn't treat, teach that. It, it teaches headship. And so verse 22 through 24 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So we're not allowed to just read Scripture and say, hmm, what do I think about that? If we're going to call ourselves followers, we have to read Scripture and believe it. And so it doesn't say that the husband should be the leader. It says the husband is the leader. And as I mentioned before, this is God's design from the very beginning. But I I need to point something out to the husbands here. Don't get confused. You're not infallible like Jesus. Go ahead. Look around if you need confirmation on that. This is a metaphor that has a lot of reality in it. But being a head, headship does not mean supreme. Jesus is supreme. We're just the head. And so an example might be dancing with the stars. If you, if you don't like the Hallmark Channel, I know you love Dancing with the Stars. And candidly, I've never seen the show, but that's all right. But if you haven't seen it like me, it features different pairs of dancers. One a celebrity, one a professional dancer, who team up and compete against other dance teams. And of course, it's Hollywood, so the costumes are elaborate, and, and they try to work in a little drama. And these are tricks to get you to tune in. But even Hollywood, there's a truth that they cling to here. And that truth is that when, some, when two people dance, someone needs to lead. And the two of them together, one leading, one following, create something beautiful. See, that choreography, that symmetry, when done well, is mesmerizing. Men and women were made to complement the other, and somebody needs to lead, or there'll be total chaos. And lest anybody here thinks that headship is an one-off or a mistranslation, I can assure you it's intentional. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Different book, he's pointing you right back to the same thing. And then slightly, slightly tweaked, slightly different, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So Christ, who's equal to God, had no problem submitting to his father. Wives should be submitting to your husbands. In church, as it says in verse 21, we should be submitting to each other. We're all one in Christ, and this is his model for the sake of God's image and our purification. Point number three is marriage is for your purification more than your spouse's. I have no control over my spouse, and every time I try to control her, it goes badly. Trust me. And so when things aren't going well, it's for my purification. But wives, what does Ephesians 5 say your responsibility is? It says, revere Christ through submission to your husband. And remember, it's not saying women submit to men. It's saying, ladies, when you pick a husband, pick a good one, and then trust him. And wives, it says respect your, uh, yeah, it says respect your husband, I'm sorry. A lot of wives, they may love their husbands, but do you respect them? And so when you go out with the girlfriends for coffee or dinner, do you ever talk disrespectfully about your husband? Do you dish a little dirt, but then go home and do something nice for him? You see, that might be love, but that's not respect. And the Bible says to respect your husband. So wives, We need your help. Help your man. Praise what you want to see repeated because sometimes I'm not sharp enough to get it the first time. Linda told me earlier in our marriage that sex begins in the kitchen. If there's any young ears, it's not going to get worse than that. Um, And you know what? (laughs) I started cooking a little more and cleaning a little little better. But one of the things that helped me to know is that my helping around the house she found attractive. And so do you tell your husbands nicely where you could use help? Or do you just expect him to figure it out? And then if he doesn't get it just right, give him a bunch of grief. Wife, the Bible says respect your husbands not based on his performance, but based on Christ's performance in you. And so this is the part where you get out your notebook or your phone if you're going to type into there. So studies show that you, me, will forget 90% of what I said today within a week. So that's why I want you to write this down. 
My spouse's good qualities are. Now, when you get home tonight or you get up in the morning, and I know some of you are moms, so there is no such thing as quiet time anymore, but when you have a moment, complete that statement. And then when you have another moment, tell your spouse. Lift up your husband, lift up your wife with praises of love and respect. So I know that Linda feels love through acts of service, especially if I can do it without complaining, which is hard, really hard. So I'm asking, what makes you feel loved? Eric, don't yell it out. We're okay. <laughs> and so does your spouse know what makes you feel loved? Write that down too. I feel loved when. And when you have this conversation with your spouse tonight or tomorrow, you give them those answers. Now, husbands, I've been beating up on the lives pretty good, and I can sense a few of you going, yeah, tell her. Yeah, give it to her. Yeah. Well, it's going to get worse because Paul's got a lot to say to us. Verses 25 and 26, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives like that. Christ was sinless, and yet he took our wrath. He gave himself up for her in order to cleanse her. Not some. He took all the abuse, all the shame, all the sin, so he could make her beautiful. Do that, guys. So, men, a couple questions. If no one's following you, are you really a leader? In a godly marriage, a good leader has to first be a good follower. Who are you following? The model in Ephesians says Jesus is who you're supposed to be following. Are you following him or are you following something else? Are you acting, are you behaving worthy of your wife following you? See, we live in strange times. Culture says own people. Put them down, look out for number one. Scripture says die to yourself. Headship of your wife is self-sacrificing love. I had somebody tell me that they love their wife because they got her an iPhone. But when we got into the story, he got himself a new iPhone and gave her, her the used one. I think he missed the point. <laughs> Husbands, in these verses, Paul tells you six times to love your wives. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Men, <laughs> watch the kids for a day and tell me you don't respect what your wife does. I know you do. I do. But do you love her? Do you cherish her? Do you use kind words when talking to her or about her? You see, Jesus never once referred to his church as the old ball and chain. If you have, that's not loving. Our kids, I mentioned, are all adults now. Shocking, because here I am only 19 years old. Um, <clears throat> but let me tell you about another mistake I made, and it was a big one. And so, guys, this is a pro tip for young dads. I had it in my head when Linda and I were young to not show weakness. In other words, not showing weakness is another way of saying not being real. And Linda would rarely, but occasionally go out with a girlfriend. And she'd leave me alone with these little people that looked something like us. Some nights, it was all I could do to hold on. <clears throat> but when Linda would get home, I'd act like it was no big deal. Oh, yeah, I got this. And what I was saying to her silently is, your job's easy. And I, I'm here to tell you, it's a miracle my kids still have all their digits. It's a miracle they didn't get significantly hurt. And Linda, I'm sorry for following culture and not being man enough to follow God in those early years. You see, culture has this ide ideology of what a man is. It says, don't show weakness, don't let him see a sweat. But guys, that's not biblical. 
Men, your wives are supposed to be your best friends. They're what complete you. Confide in your wife. Trust them with your heart, and the heart they give you in return will blow you away because my experience is her heart is way bigger and better than mine. So husbands, the world says love your wife for all her positive characteristics, right? God says love her regardless. What if God loved you based only on your positive characteristics? I will only speak for myself here, but I can tell you that I'll step out here. Beauty fades. I used to be better looking. Waistlines get bigger. I don't know how it happened. Um, <laughs> but that's why what we hear from Hollywood and what we hear in typical talk is people fall in love. It's not true. We don't fall in love. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you don't fall in love, you commit to love. And the reason we commit to love is because God first committed to us and we owe it to him. It's a pretty famous theologian and I'm a bit of an uber nerd when it comes to this guy. So I'll tell you the story later if anybody's interested, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fascinating. But he's got a quote and I've only taken a part of his quote, but it says, it's not your love that sustains the marriage. But from now on, the marriage that, it's the marriage that sustains the love. And so sometimes for some people that doesn't ring any bells, but think about that for a while because it's significant. Because marriage is a lifelong commitment. Most of you in your vows had something about rich or poor, sickness and health. How about death do you part? Love your wife effectively. Love her in a way that increases her loveliness. Love her in a way that increases her growth in Christ. That's our job as husbands. Don't fall down. Husbands, let me give you a, a simple illustration of headship. <clears throat> Chris mentioned I was a police officer. And when I was a, a young, good-looking baby police officer, one of my jobs for a while was I was a field training officer. So I would take these young heads full of mush right out of the academy, and I'd introduce them to the ways of the street. Ah, this is how you do this, kid. Ah, this is what the department expects. And so let's, for giggles, say that I get assigned this young rookie who's arrogant and cocky, maybe overconfident, reckless. And one night, for whatever reason, I come to work and I'm tired. And I just, I just don't pay very close attention. Maybe I even fall asleep in my police car, because that's happened before. And that rookie, that young officer, does something that harms somebody else or embarrasses the department and becomes national news. Is that officer guilty? Absolutely. Am I responsible as well? No doubt. Husbands, this is your watch. Don't fall asleep. You are to be the head of your home. You are to help your wife grow in Christ. I feel like I'm up here throwing lightning bolts. It wasn't really my intention. It seemed fiery when I was writing it, but it's really fiery now. So men, if, if this is bouncing off of you though, if, if you don't take this seriously, if this responsibility of headship, which is sacrificial, doesn't have your knees shaking, I don't think you understand. I don't think you're paying attention. Verses 28 through 23, Say, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." That's entertaining to me, love their wives as their own bodies. I mean, all of us are made in God's image. We know that, right? But I kind of feel like Paul's appealing to our manly vanity here. But when he does that, he's also saying she's first. The three most common areas of conflict in a marriage are money, sex, and in-laws. 
and nobody nod because your partner will see you, but in-laws are in the top three conflicts for marriage. And so that quote, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that was back in Genesis 2, and it's repeated multiple times. And when the Bible repeats something, it's usually because it's important. And I want you to remember as you're raising up your children that we learn how to be husbands and wives from watching our parents, even if they're not very good at it. So husbands, wives, let me say this really clearly. Under Christ, you're not blending two families. You're actually called to create a completely new one. When you leave your parents, do it with honor and kindness. And when you cleave to your spouse, do it with love and respect. There should be a diagram popping up here in just a second. It's real simple. It's a triangle. God at the top, husband, wife. This is the model. It's simple. And so husbands and wives, notice as you get closer to God, and the Bible tells us that God is first, you're also getting closer to each other. And I told you that early on for Linda and I, that was a secret for our marriage. And we didn't even know that. Nobody had shown me this triangle. But we lived it, and it was truth. And so notice what's not there, though. Notice the kids aren't. Because one of the biggest things that gets in the way of a marriage are children. And that doesn't mean children aren't gifts. They are beautiful, amazing, wonderful gifts. But divorce does weird things. And you know one of the most common times for divorce are? If you can survive the first seven years, the next is when your kids move out. Empty nesters get divorced at an alarming rate. And it's typically because they took each other out of the equation and they love their kids more than they love their spouse. And when the kids moved out, there were problems. And don't forget love and respect. Men, adore your wives. Wives, lift up your husband. And so here's some more stuff to write down. Husbands, you want to know how to do this? Outserve your wife. Be sacrificial. Ask her, write this down, how can I best serve you? Love her with tenderness and humility. Put her needs above your write it down. Put her, need, <laughs> put her needs above your own. Adore her. And wives, respectfully help your husband be a leader. Help, not demand. Because as soon as you say, hey, step it up, lead me, you're no longer following, you're trying to lead. Don't squelch his desire to lead. Build him up with prayer and respect. Respect him in actions and words to everybody. <clears throat> and so here's one of those things that the, uh, Dylan Bender went over this morning, and I, I went up to him after, and I said, hey, man, can I, can I use that? Absolutely, brother, absolutely. So we're still writing things down. <clears throat> I'm going to give you the top six reasons how to maintain a good flame in your relationship with your spouse. And we're going to go in reverse order. So number six is something called the six-second kiss. And what the six-second, so what science tells us is the six-second kiss, which is really hard to say when you have a dry mouth and you're nervous. The six-second kiss, though, when done with passion and care, releases oxytocin in your brain. And oxytocin is part of the pleasure section of your brain. And so if you can give your husband, your wife, a six-second kiss every day, you're getting a little oxytocin dose, and they're going to want more. Number five is hugs every day. Hug your spouse. Let him or her know that you care about them, even when you don't feel it. Four, separation reunion rituals. You know what that is? If I get up early and I go to work, and I forget to kiss Linda goodbye, I hear about it. And it's okay that I hear about it because that's a separation ritual. When I leave her, I give her a kiss. When she comes home, we hug. That's what we do. Those separation and reunion rituals, they might sound small and silly. They're critical. Do it. Love language. Everybody know what the love languages are? Everybody's got to know the love languages. All right, good. We talked about it. You thought about it. You know what it is. What's your spouse's? 
I don't really care what yours is, what's your spouse's. That's the important one to know and then use it. Number two, and this is where we start to get really good here. Number two, mutual faith-based activities. What does that mean? Going to church, going to a concert with worship music, doing something that has faith at the center of it that you do together. And then the number one, and I actually, I got home and I Googled this because it didn't seem right to me. I'm not, not that Dylan's not trustworthy because he was, but it just seems so off. The number one thing you can do to, to keep your marriage alive is prayer. And when I say prayer, that means praying together daily. And so don't, don't set yourself up for failure. If, if you hardly ever pray, don't say, well, we're going to pray every day. No, no, no. Start slow. Remember, it's, it's crawl, walk, run. Let's crawl. In our home, we turn the dinner table into the pulpit, meaning every day we did our best to have a meal together, and that was dad's opportunity to lead his wife and his family in prayer every day. Start slow. But prayer, and this is the part that I couldn't believe, Christian psychiatrist David Stoop, Dr. David Stoop, did a bunch of research, and he has something called the Marriage and Family Matters Center. And in that research, what he did is he showed that when couples that are serious about their faith, not people who just passively say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a Christian, I'm a, I'm a whatever. No, people who are serious about their faith, when they prayed together every day, the chance of them getting divorced was less than 1%. As a matter of fact, the odds, and I wrote it down here, the actual number that he found in a study was one out of 1,156 people. So if you will pray daily with your spouse, if you will care about that prayer, the chances of you getting divorced are one in 1,156. I'll take those odds. So scripture tells us that marriage is important for a lot of those reasons I've just laid out. But I also want to point out one last thing. Because in Genesis, it begins with a marriage taking place in the garden. And if you go all the way to the last book, Revelation, which we just went through, it ends with a marriage when Christ comes back to be reunited with his bride, which is us. And so your marriage, our marriage, is critical. It's a picture, a painting, if you will, of Christ and his church. And the world, they watch that painting. And so it's our job to make it beautiful. So men... Be good leaders. Men, be good followers. Women, be good leaders. Women, be good followers. And all of us need to know that God's very reputation is at stake. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.